Professor Louise Hitchcock is currently Professor of Archaeology at the University of Melbourne and is involved in a number of research projects, including the investigation of the relationship between the Aegean, Cyprian, and Philistines architecture, identity, island archaeology, and globalization in the late Bronze Age, to name a few. And actually, as part of uh, her postdoctoral research, she also was the Senior Fulbright Fellow at the Cyprus American Archaeological Research Institute, uh, that is CARI in Cyprus. She has authored over 100 articles on a variety of very interesting topics, including piracy, feasting, collapse studies, and the uh, social and economic impact of plague. Today, uh, she's with us to discuss Cyprus in the Bronze Age. So again, uh, Louise, if I may, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Andreas. Great to be here. Uh, so I'm going to, when I think of listeners on this podcast, I, I, f- I feel like there's a, a healthy mix of uh, experts and you know, novice listeners. So before we dive into the um, to the Bronze Age in Cyprus, uh, I was hoping you could just tell us what exactly defines the Bronze Age and if you could maybe highlight some of the active regional powers during this period. Yeah, um, the term Bronze Age comes from the various ages. I think it was Hesiod. And it's meant to refer to the highest level of technology humans were working in at the time. So the Bronze Age is sometimes um, preceded by a Copper Age, and before that, a New Stone Age, a Middle Stone Age, and an Old Stone Age. And then it's succeeded by the Iron Age. And um, the time period that the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean generally refers to is approximately 3000 to 1200 BCE. And then when we come into the age of iron between 1200 and 1000, this is when iron technology becomes the highest level of technology people are working in. Now, this doesn't mean people stop using stone tools or bronze. It just means that the level of technology was raised to another level. In fact, uh, I just taught in a subject recently that the humble mortar and pestle is still widely used and was named by the Guardian to be the um, one of the top 15 pieces of kitchen equipment. Now, um, with regards to Cyprus, um, which, uh, full disclosure, we do really have a Cyprian angle in this, in this podcast. How integral was Cyprus for the sustainment of the Bronze Age period in the Eastern Mediterranean? And that is in, in terms of copper. Um, and then also, how extensive would you say this trade was? Were Cypriots only traveling eastwards, for example? Um, not at all. Um, <clears throat> Cyprus was of key importance for the Bronze Age because um, the region in the Troodos is a major copper-producing area. In fact, I believe it still is. And it's not the only copper-producing area. Copper was also coming from Anatolia, from Timna in southern Israel, and also further west from Sardinia. So um, it was of key importance, but not the only importance. What is more of a problem is tin, which we don't have. um, It doesn't leave a lot of trace elements uh, to the modern era. It would have been collected at a high elevation and left no traces, Um, although we do have some insights onto that now. But again, Cyprus was of key importance. And um, what's really interesting is that in the 11th century BCE, Cyprus was 
um, have formed quite a close relationship with Sardinia um, further west. And it's like, why would they go to Sardinia when Sardinia is a major copper producer? And my suspicion, and not just mine, but others, is that they were going there to get tin that was coming into Iberia via Cornwall and then taking it back and also maybe doing some technology transfer. But we have a number of Cypriot finds in Sardinia and a number of Sardinian finds in Cyprus. And I have a new PhD student who's Sardinian who's addressing some of these issues. I want to circle back to something you mentioned about um, identifying the source of the, of the material. I, I might be wrong about this, but the other tin producing region uh, at, at this time was in Afghanistan. Now, um, are we able, we're not able to really find remnants and kind of trace them to uh, one particular region or another? That's just not something that we're capable of doing at this um, point? Probably not, but I'm interested to hear you say that because this is the first I've heard about uh, tin coming from Afghanistan. We do know that there was trade coming from Afghanistan um, based on um, finds of lapis lazuli coming into not just Mesopotamia and Egypt, but also um, mainland Greece. And lapis lazuli only comes from Afghanistan. So if they had tin at this time and they were mining it, again, just because they have it now doesn't mean that they knew about it then because it might be quite deep. I'm not sure. Um, but that's something I'm certainly going to want to look into. Yeah, no, I have. I definitely have a vague recollection of that. And if anyone... Uh, does have any background to uh, tin and its potential extraction in in perhaps far back as the Bronze Age, uh, send me an email at cypressthepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. I do know that um, tin was probably being obtained in Anatolia. So Cyprus at this time is, is not uh, known uh, by its modern name. Uh, you know, we don't call it Kipros or Kupros. Uh, it has a very peculiar name and one that is, I think it's the oldest mentioned name for Cyprus, and that is Alasia. Alasia. We don't know if the SH was pronounced. It would depend on whether or not the Cypriot language was Indo-European or Semitic. You would have the SH sound in Semitic, but not in Indo-European. So I tend to spell it with the um, Shin character, but I pronounce it Alasia. And the, the earliest mention, uh, and I, actually, I don't know if this is the earliest mention, but it's uh, very famously attested in the Amarna letters. Now, would you be able to provide a little bit of background on the Amarna letters and their significance to the Bronze Age? Oh, I'm really glad you brought that up because I have an 8,000 to 10,000 word article coming out either later this year or early next year on Amarna tablet EA35 which is the Hand of Nurgle tablet. Um, but to back up a minute, <clears throat> the Amarna letters are something like over 300 um, texts written in cuneiform, uh, mostly Akkadian or a Canaanite dialect of Akkadian. And they were found in Tel El Amarna, Egypt, in the city of Akhnaten, which was named Akhtaten. And they date to a very specific time period around 1342 to 1325, something like that. And one thing it shows is that um, these letters um, come from all over the Mediterranean and the Near East, indicating that Akkadian was a type of lingua franca, 
of the era. It was a diplomatic language, much the way French was um, a lot in the 18th and 19th century, and English has come to sort of replace that a bit more uh, today. And there are about seven tablets that um, come from Cyprus, from Alassia. It used to be controversial that um, Cyprus was Alassia. Not everybody accepted that interpretation. However, um, in 2004, an article was published in the American Journal of Archaeology by Yuval Gorin and some collaborators, and they did um, a petrographic analysis of some of the tablets, some of the Alassia tablets, and it actually shows that the clay, with the exception of one of the tablets, which may have come from um, Western Cyprus, that they come from the area around Alisa in the Troodos or Calabasos in the south. So it pretty much um, nails it down that uh, Bronze Age Cyprus was ancient Alassia. And the Hand of Nurgle tablet that I referred to, Nurgle is the Mesopotamian plague god um, who uh, was worshipped in Mesopotamia from the Ur III period around 2200 BCE up until the 7th century BCE, and his cult extended throughout Anatolia and Cyprus, obviously, and all over the place. And in this tablet, um, EA35, which is in the British Museum, the king of Cyprus, who is unnamed, is explaining to the king of Egypt, um, he's apologizing that a shipment of copper is late and not as big as promised because his workers were gripped by the hand of Nurgle, which means they were suffering some, from some kind of uh, pandemic plague. Um, and so this is really important for understanding the role of plague in Cyprus, for understanding that Alassia is Cyprus, and from understanding that um, Egypt was having diplomatic relations with Cyprus at this time. So I know that tablet that you're referring to, and it's chilling imagery. Just, uh, just that phrase, gripped by the hand of Nurgle. It's, I know um, it's very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, it really is. This part, uh, I don't know if this is still uh, debated, um, and I do believe that there's a little bit of um, disagreement, I suppose, from the the text that we have, the text that we have, and the archaeology. So the sixty-four thousand dollar question is. Did Alassia refer to the entirety of the island or to a particular city? And what's your take on what the archaeological record shows? We still really don't know for sure. Um, certainly the name of Alassia, where you have this monumental building at uh, the village of Alassia, Paleo Taverna, it could be named for that. But um, and, and the name Alassia goes back earlier, though, to the 15th century. And a lot of people used to believe it referred only to Enkemi and that Enkemi ruled over the island. Um, since that view was first put forth, uh, a number of monumental administrative centers have been uncovered in Cyprus at Alassa Paleo Taverna, at Calavasos Ias Demetrius, and at Moroni Vorness. And so it's very clear that there were a number of central administrative centers in Cyprus. It's also clear that there was some form of hierarchy as one of the um, Amarna tablets is addressed between the governor of um, Octaton and the governor of Alassia, but we don't know exactly where that is. It could be like a, a sort of um, what we call a secondary center. And it's very clear that there was um, a number of administrative centers 
Um, and it could just be that Alasia was a name that uh, people outside of Cyprus used to refer to the entire place. For example, the Egyptians often refer to people coming from the islands as coming from the Great Green without being more specific. <clears throat> so I'm kind of dodging your bullet. I would be quite happy. <laughs> I would yeah. be quite happy to see Alisa Paleo Taverna as Alasia because it is the largest, it's one of the largest, most impressive buildings in the Mediterranean at that time outside of Egypt. We also have reference to the first and oldest, I suppose, oldest reference to a king. Um, and it's a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, Kush Meshusha, uh, I, I believe it was his name. How would you, how would you pronounce it? Maybe Kush Masusa. I'm not sure. Kush. Uh, and again, this is um, uh, the only reference, I believe, uh, to a king at this time. And again, whether or not that refers to the entirety of the island um, or to a specific city, uh, I guess it's still up for debate. And I haven't really looked specifically into that particular king. I focus yeah. more on archaeology. However, sure. it would be surprising to me if you had one site ruling over the whole island just because of the number of monumental buildings that spring up during this period, as well as um, uh, the geographical diversity. And really, a lot of Mediterranean areas at this time are characterized more by small city-states than by um, sort of ruling empires. It seems to be only Mesopotamia where you see ruling empires, and then they expand and then they contract and go back to being city-states. And this happens in Mesopotamia, back and forth and back and forth. And with Crete and with the Greek mainland, you tend to see a number of different centers. Oh, I would say the Hittites also are a major ruling power, but um, you tend to, city-states are more the norm, and that's what I would see uh, for Cyprus I know I do. I do know that you are an archaeologist, so um, this you might not have spent as much time uh, investigating the meaning of some of these tablets. But one one Amarna tablet, uh, I believe it's EA thirty eight, called a brotherly quarrel. And uh, one of the letters uh, from Alasia, they refer to the king of Egypt as brother. Uh, and a lot of that, uh, you see a lot of that language. Is that merely a formality or does would that suggest some sort of equal footing? It's what they call it, it, both. It's what they call in anthropology and linguistic anthropology an honorific. Um, honorifics are still studied today. One of my former students studied um, honorifics in Thailand for her PhD. And when they address each other as my brother, it means they're addressing each other as equals. Um, when they say my son, it means they're addressing each other as unequals. It doesn't have anything to do with actual familial relationships or incest or any of that. And this is quite common amongst the whole host of cultures. For example, in North American Indians, which you might be familiar with, you have potlatch ceremonies. And in um, these Indian tribes, or Native American tribes, rather, you have various kings trying or chiefs trying to outdo each other with throwing lavish feasts. And there's one sculpture that shows um, it's a statue of a chief holding what looks like a child on his lap. 
And if we didn't know, because this was studied in the historical period, that this was another king, we would think it was a father and son. And it was a way of diminishing the status of this king by um, identifying him as a child and a subordinate. Um, so this is very, very common, um, this use of honorifics. And it's been argued by um, another, an art historian, Marion Feldman, who studied the international style of portable exotic objects that spread all over the Near East, including Cyprus. In fact, Cyprus was involved in producing a lot of these objects, that there was an elite brotherhood of kings. So you had this sort of creation of a supra elite regional set of identities of brother kings that maybe shared more in common with each other than they did with the people they ruled over. So if we um, jump ahead a little bit, it appears we have waves of settlements uh, to Cyprus at this time, beginning from the Levant and then later uh, from Anatolia based on the settlement structures, the archaeological evidence that we have. That's right. Um, now, but in the 12th century, we see the beginnings of a different material culture. Uh, we also see the arrival of the undeciphered Cipro-Minoan script. Um, oh, you're late. You're late. Oh, am I late? I got to the timeline. So when does the Cipro-Minoan uh, script arrive? Cipro-Minoan script appears in Enchimay, I think, in the 15th century BCE. Um, you might have more of it from these later periods, actually from the 13th, not the 12th, because um, a lot of times these tablets weren't baked. Um, they may not have been intended to be saved if they were administrative records, so they might have just disintegrated. Um, the one from Enchimay, I believe, was found in a fire. So it appears first in the 15th century and continues into the, into the 13th. I don't know if we actually have any of it from the 12th. We do have a Greek inscription from the 12th written in Cyprosyllabic, which is on a kebab spit um, from a uh, grave at Kukliapele Paphos, which spells the name Opheltu, which is belonging to Opheltes. But um, the Cipromanoan script appears much earlier. Um, there's also uh, a, an example of it from the Philistine city of Ashkelon. But um, there's not enough of it to decipher it. Now, does this imply uh, a Minoan settlement or simply Minoan contact? And, and what would the archaeological evidence suggest about that? Because we also start seeing horned altars, which seems to suggest an appropriation of Minoan symbols of power. Um, how, how do we, how do we reconcile all that? Well, it's, I've recently been doing a bit of reading on secret societies, not secret societies in the present, but in anthropological cultures. And the purpose of secret societies is to create these sorts of, um, relationships where you were sort of an insider or an outsider and being an insider meant having specialized knowledge. Um, Supermanoan is definitely borrowed from the, um, uh, Minoan, uh, undeciphered Minoan language of Linear A. So the script was borrowed, but it's written somewhat differently and in different types of contexts. Um, there's also quite a bit of Cipro-Minoan from Ugarit indicating quite a bit, quite strong trading relationship there. Um, I haven't studied Cipro-Minoan in detail, but my former student, Brent Davis, is an expert on Linear A and has um, published also on Cipro-Minoan. But there's really not enough of it to say what kind of language it was. And the fact that you get it so early, but you don't get a lot of other things like 
Minoan pottery argues against some kind of colonization event. I think, as you suggested, maybe based on reading my articles, it's um, more an attempt to appropriate something that communicated what we call distance value and prestige and exclusion. Um, And uh, sort of parallel to this, Bernard Knapp has argued that the um, copper industry at the site of Kideon was shrouded in secrecy in order to sort of keep it within a small group of people. And this is why it's within the sacred precinct. And this is not so unusual, but um, I believe that the Cypriots were appropriating a number of other Minoan um, symbols. You mentioned the horns of consecration. And it's interesting because we start to see horned altars in uh, Philistia. And there's an interesting one from Ashkelon, which the authors claim was borrowed from the Mycenaeans. However, there's no reason to say it came from the Mycenaeans and not from Cyprus, because I think we only have evidence for about two horns of consecration on the Greek mainland, and we have something like seven on Cyprus. So um, the Cypriots were um, imitating Minoan symbols far more than the Mycenaeans were, and whether this was uh, brought over based on a trading trip to Crete or whether they copied it from pottery, um, because you have uh, the horns of consecration symbol uh, was widely circulated on both Minoan and later Mycenaean style pottery. We're gonna we're gonna come back to this a lot more in depth um, when we focus a little bit on the uh, architecture of the time period, which you've written on extensively, and I do have a lot of follow up questions. But I'd like to give some context now to uh, pretty much 1177 BC, uh, which was um, made very famous by Eric Klein's uh, book. This is obviously the Bronze Age collapse which he calls ultimately a systems collapse. Can you briefly explain um, what this um, theory is on what brought about the end of the Bronze Age, or at least its its decline? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to mention, I've known Eric since we were both MA students and we bicycled to the 1984 Olympics together. So we're <laughs> long, time, long time buddies. It's yeah. more of like a sibling relationship, but- um, Oh, that's great. And I actually was lucky to read 1177 before it was published. Um, I see it, uh, he calls it as a perfect storm of calamities. My preference is to refer to it as uh, what's called in physics self-organized criticality. And this idea of self-organized criticality, complexity is modeled by a sand pile. And um, in this sand pile, you might have... Uh, Of course, the pile accumulates by dropping sand on top. And from time to time, when you drop a piece of sand on the pile, you might have small avalanches, and then they stop because the system corrects for itself. And then you reach a point which is known as the critical state where you don't know which grain of sand it is, but suddenly you have cascading avalanches and the system falls apart. And this is kind of, I guess, another way of sort of saying what... um, Eric saw as a perfect storm of uh, calamities. And um, I don't know if you've received or gotten a hold of the um, commentaries on 1177 that were just published. No, I haven't, but uh, Um, please do tell. I can send them to you, but um, there's a recent commentary published uh, last month in the um, Journal of Eastern Mediterranean Heritage and and, uh, Archaeological 
uh, Heritage Studies. It's a long name. And there were several commentaries. In my own commentary, what I suggested is to move forward. There needs to be more collaboration in terms of looking both at studies of collapse over history to look for um, to look for patterns, but also looking more at the Western Mediterranean. I think Italy has kind of flown under the radar, and um, this is nobody's fault. But it's like it's a lot to master the Near East. It's a lot to master the Aegean. It's a lot to master the Aegean and Cyprus, and so on. What you do see is that um, in the late 13th century already, Mycenaean pottery is being not just exported to Italy, but it's being manufactured there, which indicates the presence of Mycenaean potters. And there's also some indication that you had Italian workers in Greece, and this is um, <clears throat> indicated by a type of pottery being manufactured there called handmade burnished ware. But it's also indicated by the appearance of a new type of cut-and-thrust double-tang sword called the Nautu sword, which was an effective cut-and-thrust weapon. And Reinhard Young, who studies these things intently and also studies Mycenaean pottery outside of Greece, um, <clears throat> has determined that the sword style um, originates in Italy and spreads into Greece and may also be connected with the activities of the uh, sea people. Mm -hmm. And we do know that you have a uh, change in the material culture at this time, both in Sardinia and in Sicily. Um, something I saw when I was in Sicily for the first time a couple of years ago in a museum was a notched ox scapula, which is a type of Cypriot, a very specific type of Cypriot ritual object. And so that's kind of indicates some kind of Cypriot connection there as well. So I think we need to also, you know, look at all of these things and drill a bit deeper and a bit wider. Uh, as it stands now, um, based on the, what you call the perfect, or what Eric Klein calls a perfect storm, what are some of those events that, um, that we know as of now, uh, before we cast the net wider, that contributed to the Bronze Age collapse? Well, he suggests earthquake, and I re heard the paper that he originally gave based on this idea, which was um, presented before 1177, and it makes a good point because a lot of the um, places that are um, destroyed or sacked or attacked um, sit near earthquake fault lines, and you know, an earthquake wouldn't destroy a city, but it might create a moment of chaos where you could have um, a local uprising. And that's one. Another he mentions is the Sea People. And Aaron Mayer and I have written this in more detail, suggesting that there was pirate activity going on throughout the Mediterranean and that um, people were either killed in this pirate activity or they um, joined the pirates, which then snowballed into more and more, a larger and larger pirate presence. Um, taking on the name of the various uh, tribes of uh, sea people. Sea people itself is a modern term. It's kind of like saying European. If I tell you something was caused by a European, you wouldn't really have much specificity unless I say they were from Switzerland or England or France or something like that. So it would be the activity of the sea people is another um, activity. Drought has been suggested even though there is some evidence for drought, I'm not completely convinced because 
Um, I think it's hard to destroy things if you're hungry. However, drought might be seen um, as something to blame the king on because it's the king's job, at least in Egypt it was, to ensure that the Nile flooded yearly. And so um, a crop failure could be blamed uh, on a king and also lead to um, this sort of uprising. So you could have uh, drought or climate change, earthquake, raiding and piracy. And some people have suggested plague and disease. And I don't believe plague, having now researched this, I don't think plague alone is um, enough to cause uh, this kind of issue because tablet EA35 dates to like the mid 14th century. And it's in the 13th century in Cyprus that you have the greatest proliferation of monumental building going on. So the Sea Peoples, um, traditionally, they've, they've been blamed. I mean, I think they had the lion's share of the, uh, the blame for the Bronze Age collapse and the disruptions in Cyprus. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the fact that they were, um, there was a, a group with different identities, different names, including one of them called the Danuna, which yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because it seemingly correlates to uh, Homer's Dana, uh, Danoi. Danaoi, I don't know. Danaoi, yeah. You talk about assonance in one of your papers. Yeah. And I wonder, like, there's a name that Cyprus is also known by, Iadnana. Is that that an example of assonance? Can you uh, tell us what that is exactly? It also means it translates, it's the Assyrian um, term for Cyprus. And Ya means um, like island or sea. Like you have. Um, various uh, names like Yafo in Israel and various Ya names and Yadnana means island of the Danuna. So it uh, it seems like the group of sea people that um, settled in Cyprus um, were the tribe known as the Danuna. And the thing is, there's been a lot of concentration put on the Peleset or the Philistines because of the Bible and because um, Philistine sites now in Israel, with the exception of Gaza, have been so intensely excavated and studied. But I think really also, again, to go to the next level, we need to look at some of these other, uh, we need to look at in terms of some of these other sea people's sites. And um, So I think you do have Greek settling in Cyprus, but they weren't alone because you also have Phoenician settlements in the um, Iron Age. And Cyprus has always been sort of like, let's say, a melting pot. Um, And when you do have migration and Saf Yasser Landau, who I disagree with many things, but I agree with this in his book on the Philistines, he talks about migration. And when people migrate, they often migrate to a place they had familiarity with through trading. I think that could be one of the things happening in Cyprus. Also, something that's important to note, whereas a lot of sites in Crete and mainland Greece um, and coastal Levant were either destroyed or re-inhabited or show a new uh, group emerging, not all of the sites in Cyprus were destroyed. The monument, Several of the monumental centers were but many of them just keep going on and maybe the character changes. And so um, I think that that's what's going on. But I would say it's kind of 
what we would call um, a transnational or entangled culture. You mentioned that a lot of the towns or cities, they, they survived. And um, that I've, I've always found really fascinating because there was a lot of, Cyprus was insulated to a large extent from the Bronze Age collapse. You know, there's a lot of towns or cities that we have devastation, for example, at Ankeme, but we still have the continuation of copper trade, Cipro Minoan script, and complex masonry. Uh, and I think there's other examples. I'm not uh, sure if the Cipro Minoan script continues, but you do have... Or we have Sorry, maybe I should. Uh, we we still have literacy, and what, I'm not going to call it Cypriot, but literacy still continues. And we know uh, that Cypriots were going all the way to Sardinia in the 11th century. So, um, yeah. Why was Cyprus so? Why was it in such a position to to bounce back? I mean, um, I, I remember from um, a line in Eric Klein's a book. He he actually says there was a resilience in the restructuring of its political and economic organization. Uh, how do you make sense of that? I think that's a little bit glossing over the facts of day-to-day life. I think you did have some new political organizations. You also have a couple of like uh, one or two generation sites at Montpelo Castro and Pila Coconut Cremos. But I think, but the it seems to be the main ritual centers continue on. Hala Sultan Teke seems to continue on. Um, and I make sense of that in the sense that First of all, uh, copper was really important. Um, second of all, um, even pirates, modern pirates had safe havens. And so there were probably a number of safe havens in Cyprus. And then also after the sort of 12th century collapse, which doesn't happen all at once, but happens over time, what happens, I mean, Cyprus was always kind of an independent entity, except for maybe local rulers. Um but it's been argued that the sea people attacks sort of weakened the Egyptian grip on the southern Levant and weakened the Hittite grip on coastal Anatolia. And with so many cities destroyed, maybe plunder just wasn't that uh, profitable. And with the loosening of the grip, these places became um, attractive places to settle. 40 years ago, we would have called the 12th century the beginning of the Mycenaean colonization of Cyprus. And that was, I believe, principally based on pottery evidence. More recent archaeological evidence, um, I, I suppose, uh, has challenged that interpretation, um, and we have a reinterpreted material evidence. So is this what you would call a paradigm shift? Uh, to add on to that, how do we reconcile that with linguistic evidence? Well, I mean, is it a paradigm shift or just a problem of doing more research and having uh, more detailed information? For example, um, there are a lot of chariot craters found on Cyprus, more than in the Greek mainland. So they were very clearly, the Cypriots very clearly liked these. You find them in a lot of 13th century tombs. And when they were first turning up, I mean, and it used to be the methodology was much more simple, pots equal people. And there was a lot of excitement that, oh, this means the Mycenaeans were colonizing, okay? And um, at, when they actually were able to analyze the paint and analyze the clay, it turned out they were being made in the argolids, so they were being exported. But you do find some Mycenaean-style architecture. So without a doubt, there were some people with... Um, there were some people coming from Greece, but the thing is, if the Sea People are a mixed 
shipboard culture that formed as a separate culture based on being on a ship, just like Cyprus formed a separate culture initially by being on an island, just as the Minoans who came from Anatolia in 7000 BC formed a separate culture. You had ch changes taking place, first of all, but then you had some of them settling in Cyprus. That's, that's not a problem. Um, when I went to Cyprus for my Fulbright, which was for a year, I was all there full of an agenda to find this Aegean uh, presence in the architecture. And I also, though, challenged my own biases. And this is based on hearing a lecture by Bernard Knapp, where he said, you can't prove archaeology, you can't prove ethnicity through archaeology. And I'm not sure I entirely agree with him on that, but I tried to challenge myself instead of saying, oh, this is evidence of Mycenaean colonization. I always, every step of the way, question myself, why is this evidence of Mycenaean colonization? And I started looking at the masonry um, technique on Cyprus. And the earliest Ashler masonry on Cyprus comes from the west, from the uh, fortress site of Nidovikla, where you have door jams with what we call drafted margins. That's where the side of the block is cut back so you can get a perfect join. And then you start seeing Ashur masonry and 15th century tombs at Enkemi. And then when you start seeing this explosion of Ashur architecture in like the late 14th, early 13th century on Cyprus, it's always unique. It's not like um, the Aegean. They may be imitating some Aegean forms and features, um, but the uh, Cypriot technique is actually far more sophisticated than the Aegean. You see these enormous blocks um, with drafted margins and what we call maneuvering bosses, the little things that stick out that are used to maneuver the block into place. And this is something we typically associate with classical architecture. Um, and so it's really, really advanced. The only evidence of drafted margins I was able to find in the Aegean are basically like three blocks on Crete. Um, I think one from Malia and two from Festos, or I might have that reversed, but it's in an early article by Sinclair Hood. And so it was very clear to me that whereas the Cypriots were copying this Aegean feature, that Aegean feature, it was not Aegean. Um, in fact, it was far superior. Would it, be, and, would it be fair to say that it's a Cypriot innovation? Oh, yes, yes. I think it was. Um, you do see a little bit with drafted margins in Ebla, I believe. And um, maybe maybe at Ugarit, but I know I'm not I'm not convinced it's earlier, so I see it as a Cypriot innovation. I just want to circle back because I think anyone listening and actually I should speak to my, my own uh, perspective here. We might miss what the significance is of Ashler masonry and why this is such a, a hot topic, so to speak. People yeah, even what is Ashler masonry? It's basically masonry with a worked face that has an, it can either have an even appearance or it can have what we call a rusticated appearance. Um, that is with sort of uneven chisel marks, giving it this look that we call rustic. So hence uh, rusticated. And um, building an Ashler masonry, it was a big innovation in Crete, which the Mycenaeans later took up. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say that 
the Minoans may have borrowed it from the Levant, but I think they were influencing um, the Levant to a large extent. Um, and they did some, I mean, the thing is they had more stone to work with, which, which helped. They may have been influenced by the Egyptians, not in the sense that they were building the same kind of buildings the Egyptians did, but we know there were probably Minoan workers in Egypt because we find their pottery there and things like that. They might have seen it and said, this is a great idea. I'm going to have some of this and build something that will impress visitors. You actually mentioned in one of your papers, uh, you coined the term international style um, for architecture. Yeah. What is the international style exactly? Okay. Um, actually, the term international style goes back to a couple of earlier scholars, William Stevenson Smith and Hetty Goldman, and it's taken up by Mar um, and Janice Crowley, and it's taken up by Marion Feldman, who calls it international koine. However, they don't apply it to architecture. They apply it to small portable objects that are in what we might call a style combining styles from different places. So as, let's say, you have a conical riton fan in Episcopi Bambula, and um, but it's made out of faience, which is more of an Egyptian material. And the shape uh, being, a, being conical is something we associate with um, the Minoans and Crete and later the Mycenaeans. And then some of the iconography on it is Levantine. And so it's taking these different elements um, and combining them to make it really not sort of unclear where it would have originated from, but at the same time, um, let's say I gave you one of these, or let's say in modern times, I gave you a bottle of Scotch whiskey from Tasmania, and you might proudly place this on your fireplace mantelpiece. So when your friends come over, they would be impressed by seeing it and you would be able to tell them all about it because you have the specialized knowledge. And that's what the international style is. And I think Cyprus was creating this kind of international style of architecture that had some things that were familiar and other things that were really um, different would be impressive to visitors. So I get what you mean. Aegean styles uh, doesn't necessarily indicate Aegean people, but with um, with linguistic evidence and uh, even naming, let's just let's just circle back to the Danuna, uh, conceivably giving their name to the island at one point. What is your take on Aegean colonization? I, I don't know if that's that's probably not the right word. Uh, I know Bernard Knapp believes this was neither colonization or immigration but hybridization. So is this an apt characterization? Um, I actually hate his term hybridization, although I used it in the beginning, because if you look up hybridity in the or original use of the term, it refers to um, crossbreeding of plants and animals, indicating two breeds, not, um, and um, I think what we're looking at is something much more diverse. And this is why I prefer entangled or transnational. Um, also, a problem with hybridization, it can be used to, um, it, it's, it's almost a meaningless term in the sense that it can refer to a particular type of art combining different styles, which would be an elite product. It can also refer to subaltern resistance, which is a completely opposite meaning. So I tend to prefer entanglement or transnational or transcultural. Um, but I think it is sort of a transcultural environment in that you do 
also have Phoenician cities in Cyprus. This doesn't mean they didn't all speak Greek. Maybe they did, or maybe half of them did. I really don't know. Or maybe it was just, I mean, you have to remember also that anything that's written down was usually written down by elite males that knew writing. Most people didn't need to write in the ancient world because it was um, writing first and foremost was usually transactional. And so even if you were, let's say in Mesopotamia, you wanted to sell your house to your neighbor, you would go to a scribe to execute the contract because you couldn't write, and then you'd put your seal on it. So, you know, I, I, I think it was, there were, uh, there were a lot of Greeks on Cyprus. I don't like colonization simply because it sort of um, implies this 18th or 19th century notion of like a superior people bringing culture to the backward natives, which right. Cyprus yeah. were anything but that. And it's like, you know, if the Mycenaean civilization was so good, I mean, it was kind of wiped out in the 12th century. Why would they be mounting a big colonization uh, movement? And the thing is, for the time it was, these ideas were written down, it made sense because what we had, you know, we had, you know, we had the Homeric sagas, we had a little bit of Troy, we had the Mycenaean palaces. So within that framework, that kind of narrative made sense. But as you, I mean, the thing is, what you have to be willing to do with archaeology is to, when you get new sorts of evidence, is to revise your models and revise your idea. I mean, when Aaron and I came up with the pirate model, which we didn't do it because we, you know, we're not absolutely confident this is what it was, but it seemed to be a model that fit the evidence. Evidence of having like um, various different cultural influences like Italian weapons, Cypriot notched uh, animal scapula, which were used for divination. Um, and maybe identity coalescing around Mycenaean-style drinking activities, just as in 18th century piracy, identity coalesced around the Jolly Roger flag, um, sort of a symbol that identity could coalesce around without necessarily reflecting um, the birth of uh, the birthplace of each individual. Migrations, I, I, I fully understand, they're notoriously difficult to prove archaeologically, too. Is there anything that could conceivably change this in the future? You know, I don't know, because I tend, anthropologists tend to view um, identity as something cultural, not something based on DNA. It's like um, with the Ashkelon Cemetery, which is a very small sample, um, they have them coming from somewhere in the Mediterranean, and that's fine, but they weren't, you know, Ashkelon doesn't have a lion gate or um, a lot of the other things we associate with Mycenaean culture. It's like, it's not where you come from, it's what you become through your daily routines. There's a famous um, Greek poet, Odysseus Elitis, who says, Greekness, it's not where you were born, it's what you become. And um, I think that's very apt. A few years ago when I was in Israel, I was lucky enough to go to the Samaritan sacrifice in Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans are a, a group or a tribe of um, Israel, Israelis that trace their origins back to the original Israelites. And they still carry out the traditional 
um, Old Testament sacrifice of uh, sheep for Passover. They sacrificed one sheep per family. And about 120 years ago, there were only seven families left, so seven sheep. And they increased their bloodline by marrying Eastern European women. So now they're up to, I don't know what it is today, but in 2007, it was up to 45 families. So, I mean, ethnicity is something that's malleable. Right. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, identity is flexible. It changes, it adapts. It's not something that's encoded in our DNA. And that, you know, and I, I feel that we still, we encounter that a lot of the times, especially with um, the misunderstandings of how, uh, you know, DNA identity technology works. You know, you drop your saliva, send it off in the mail. Um, it's interesting to know where maybe your ancestors came from, but it doesn't really tell you who you are now. And now with, with that in mind, um, if we if we can safely say, yes, there was contact. Yes, there were certain migratory groups that left modern day Greece and made their way to Cyprus. And maybe, they as- maybe they weren't all Greek. Maybe some of them were Cypriot. Maybe some of them were Sardinian. There was probably a, a mixture of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Inevitably, some settled, maybe some didn't. What was the appeal then in ado- the way, and this might be a little hard to answer this, uh, this question, but what was the appeal in ultimately adopting uh, many of these Greek markers of identity? Uh, that's principally language, for example, well, they- uh, especially when, if you consider Cyprus was in a, m- a more stable position, so to speak. They aren't adopted immediately. Um, the Cyprosyllabic script, which was used to write Cypro-Minoan, continued to be used to write Greek, although you have the Greek alphabet taken up. An alphabet is a heck of a lot more efficient to use than a syllabic script. I did my master's in the history of Mesopotamia, and I had to study Sumerian and Akkadian. I also studied Hittite. And the thing is, with Akkadian, there are 600 commonly used signs. And sometimes the values of these signs are different depending on context. Having to learn 22 or 26 characters is a lot easier than having to learn 600 symbols. You talk about the possibility of one city in Cyprus actually being founded by sea peoples. um, There's There's two, actually. Okay, so right. Uh, so, which which are the two, and uh, what's your what's your current your working theory at the moment? Before I talk about those two, I would just like to mention something about Enkemi. Enkemi is also the earliest version of um, orthogonal grid town planning um, in the Mediterranean. People like to talk about uh, Greece and its orthogonal planning. Well, Enkemi was about a thousand years earlier. Okay, um, moving on. Um, the two sites are Ma Pelo Castro and Pila Coconacremos. Um, Pila, it's not really sure whether they were refugees or sea peoples or pirates or what they were, but it's a site that's inhabited for a couple generations. And Ma Pelo Castro, um, it seems a bit more planned. And Ma Pelo Castro, it adheres more to what we understand about pirate geography in that it's situated on a promontory um, with a wall that cuts off the headland. And a promontory is a really sort of preferable place for pirates to inhabit because they can spot passing prey and it's also difficult to attack. Pila is a bit more complicated. The houses are both Cypriot and Minoan in style. 
you have hordes of buried objects that include silver and gold and pottery, and a lot of it shows Minoan characteristics. And um, But you also have Sardinian pottery, you also have local pottery, and there's a tendency to want to see this as a Minoan refugee settlement um, based on the most recent excavations. I would still kind of prefer to see it as a combination pirate, sea people, slash settlement. They definitely had money if they had these hordes. Um, also, usually when people bury a hoard in the ground and leave it, it's not because they intended to leave permanently. They intend to come back for it and something prevents them. Um, I did an article some years ago on, on looking at abandonment and looking at the um, Syrian people in the Golan Heights when they left their, when they abandoned their houses, um, they sort of hid in the forest and looked on at what was happening to their property and sometimes even went back at night to feed their animals. Eventually they were driven out, but people just don't abandon something suddenly and leave all their money, let's say, behind. Do you have any um, plans in the foreseeable future um, after you're finished in Israel to uh, revisiting some work in Cyprus? I know you're obviously still working on it with regards to the uh, the one tablet that you're going to be publishing soon, but uh, any plans to visit? Well, I revisit it fairly regularly in that when I was um, in Cyprus for one year in 1999, I collected a lot of information, such as the article I sent you that came out about two years ago now that was on the all the Mason's Marks of Cyprus. Um, there's some more information there to look at. And I have almost a complete draft manuscript for a book that um, I would like to publish when I retire um, on Cypriot architecture. Um, the thing is, my institution likes us to publish two or three items a year, and that's easier to do with articles. Um, but uh, I have by no means left Cyprus behind. And in fact, it's working on Cyprus that led me to the Philistines because Cyprus led me to the Sea People. Cyprus and the Sea People led me to the Philistines, and that led to an opportunity to excavate at one of the Philistine cities. So, um, I mean, and also my knowledge of Cyprus has helped me understand more what's going on in Sardinia, what's going on here in Israel. So it's, it's never far out of mind. This was a really great conversation, Louise. Thank you so much. Pleasure. And, you know, the thing is, there is a lot to debate. It means there's a lot we still don't know. But at the same time, our information is a lot more, um, we have a lot more information to work from. Um, well, I hope you have a great evening and I will be in touch, Louise. And have a great weekend. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Take care. Enjoy. Bye, Andreas. Bye.